Today's lesson text is a story about a sea. Even though I've never really had the privilege of being on a sea, I am a fan of oceans. Uh, in order being the Atlantic, the Pacific, and Billy, for anyone that can get that. <laughs> but our lesson text comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in their boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And then they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. But the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the winds and the sea obey? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. So the fact of the matter is, one cannot go their whole life and never face a storm. And living here in New Hampshire especially, we all know very well that the day can begin nice, fresh, and sunny, and can end in some pretty nasty weather. And that's kind of what happened on this day for Jesus and the disciples as well. In Mark chapter 4, which we've been studying, the day starts off with Jesus putting up to shore so he could preach without being mobbed. And the day had been a pleasant one. With none of our modern machinery to haze up the horizon, it was a nice location. They were out in the moderate Mediterranean sun, shorebirds were dancing ahead in the distance, and the blue water of Galilee gleamed as far as anyone could see. And even Jesus' teaching in Mark 4 is a little unusually pleasant even for Jesus. Because though Jesus was speaking in parables that we've been looking at, they were parables about farming and about living the kind of slow, gentle lives that these people in that area lived. Jesus was talking about their lives and he was talking to them. So even though Jesus in the parables was warning about Satan snatching seeds and weeds of concern choking out the good fruit, for the most part, Jesus was talking pleasantly about the long-awaited kingdom of God, where everything would turn out all right. So on this day, when Jesus was preaching, even if folks didn't understand what the world Jesus was saying, they could still just sit there and smile. It made them happy. And besides that, even if they weren't listening to Jesus, they were out in the sun with lots of fresh air, they were down by the water, and given the time and the place that all this happened, this was probably the most exciting thing that ever would and ever did happen in the neighborhood. So in today's text, we come past this nice scene where Jesus is preaching out on the water, and we get to where the preaching is done, and the disciples put out to sea. 
And again, this was a pleasant voyage even then, because it's marked related in chapter 4, verses 10, 12, 33 through 34. Jesus was taking time to explain to the disciples the secrets of the parables. So today we're just getting better for them. And imagine you would if our Bible study program was to have a Bible study with Jesus on a yacht in nice sunny Southern California. It's, it's not hard to imagine attendance would be a little bit up. And that's how the day was going. But time continued and we get to today's climax where two things happen. First off, Jesus being fully human, Jesus being like us in every single way, was by now at the point of exhaustion. See, Jesus had been doing exhortation, he'd been exercising, he'd been healing, and he'd been just plain dealing with people for a whole day. How many of us can go a whole day dealing with folks, even if you like them and they like you, and not get a little bit tired? And Jesus had been going through that, and him sharing the same weaknesses as us, he was probably visibly fatigued. So Jesus goes and he takes a nap. Now the second thing that happens in our story after Jesus goes and takes a nap, is the storm comes up. Now it probably started like, like a regular storm, and the disciples seeing Jesus is tired even get the sense that they don't want to wake him up. It's better to let him rest, even as they start to get nervous. But there's a peculiar property to big inland lakes. For those of you who are a little older than myself, the Edward Fitzgerald was not the first or will be the last ship lost on big inland seas to big sudden winds. And while the Great Lakes in the United States are somewhat predictable, even though they still be predictable, have a reputation for what Gordon Lightfoot called the Witch of November, Galilee has a particularly bad rap of inland seas for being really, really moody. It has a different situation and a different climate, and the lake is known for changing moods. So anyways, kind of sum up our intro, the second thing to happen that day, after all the pleasantries of the beginning, after all the teaching of Jesus, after all the parables, and the thing we need to know is, while Jesus is taking a nap, suddenly, dark storm clouds come riding down over the lake like an angry little Valkyrie or something. And the storm had to surely be abnormal. Because if you will remember, disciples like Peter, James, and John in a sailboat, they were fishermen. They were used to this sea. They made their living on it. And this storm was wailing and howling enough to scare even them. There just must have been a tone, a hum, a sense of the deadly nature and air of death in this day's storm. The disciples are out on the boat. A big storm's coming up. They are scared for their lives, and we must ask the question, well, what does that have to do with me 2,000 years later? Well, first off, as I began, all disciples, as long as they will live, will face storms. They are not called for blue, sunny skies, 365. That's a drought and an entirely different problem. And, well, most of the storms in our lives will be the typical blusters. The blow-ups that would take out of proportions, the mountains we turn into molehills looking back at it. That vulnerability to storms and shifting weather and days that start good and ends bad 
means that yes, we are susceptible to the occasional hurricane, tornado, and every scary thing you can imagine out there, even a lethal one. And in the midst of such storms, we are tempted to consider God indifferent to us. We sound like these disciples who say, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? So we join them. Now, that attitude amongst us takes many different forms. I can't chase out every single one today, but I'll just handle one of the most common. Most broadly, Christians and unbelievers alike tend to feel that God is indifferent whenever we are all exposed to the stark natural laws by which God governs creation. As Jesus said himself, and I'm putting it loosely, sun and darkness, rain and drought, they happen to both good and evil alike. See, God has so ordered things that in the main, for us believers even, poison stays poison. All knives stay sharp and sickness remains a pestilence. Yet quite often we assume that by believing in God or introducing God into the picture, we are going to be somehow exempted from this reality. Satan even tempted Jesus with that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, where he tells Jesus, go ahead, jump off the temple. But Jesus knew full well that in the regular order of things, angels guiding you to not trip your foot on the stone aside, to jump off the top of the temple is to go splat. Yet, when we are facing storms, we tend to run into the fact that deep down at the core of us, most of us believe that that cannot, that that must not be so for us. And our heart turns to a complaint to God when we find that no, it is. Because see, we, we tend to dwell in a mindset that it's one thing if this would have been, instead of a boat of disciples, a boat of unbelievers or robbers or Democrats or Republicans or whichever one you don't like, and they were going to go down in the storm. We tend to think, all right, that, that's fine. But it's a vastly different thing to us when it's a boat full of good people or it's our own ship that is going down in the storm. And it's just we often try to impugn God. Say you can't be for just how the world works and it has always worked. No one has ever postulated the idea of God in a world where storms were not scary and tornadoes were not scary. And so we just have to get out of this mindset where if everything worked right as surely it must, such things would never happen. The first thing we must say on that is that in and of themselves, the laws of nature are powerless. They just describe how God normally governs the universe. They only exist because God is so moving and sustaining creation through them. So while we may not like the implications, there's no seed that sprouts less God does it. But that also means there's no space rock or lightning bolt that falls down and hits somebody unless God does it. 
There just never was a Garden of Eden without the snake in it. That stupid tree was planted in there, and it's just how it is. And so if you say you believe in God, believing that exceptions to the normal course are anything other than exceptions is not the norm. And that just pushes us up against the fact that nine times out of ten, we see those forces as so impersonal. And that's what we tend to strive with God with. Why, why don't you, you fix this? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll get to the point on some of this that I even have little patience for some of it. I have little patience for the faith will save me that some people tell me. It, Jesus told the devil when, when the devil told him to jump off the top of the tower, don't tempt God. But sometimes I listen to my fellow Christians say, well, faith will guide me through whatever the problem is. And I just want to say, you do realize God's the same God who made the cobra, the lion, the tooth, and the claw. You do know what's going to happen if you stick your head into the mouth of a crocodile. Just saying. Because see, what we're really getting at is when it comes to calamity, they're going to happen. But what has to part are the worldviews of faith and the worldviews of disbelief. The unbelieving world sees in God and sees in his governance this cruel and uncaring thing in it. The Christian, instead, is drawn to see things a second way. Yet, I will say in that second way, any of us that see things that way do it incompletely. Because note the disciples' complaint. Do you care that we perish? Again, brothers and sisters, we may accept God's governing nature, and now we believe, we tend to think we're, we're half-exempt, but Jesus had to warn his disciples, and in the Gospel of Mark, he's going to do it in over and over and over again. And it gets to that faith will save me thing. Jesus always has to warn us against the attitude that we have an in with God. Jesus takes no account of people, and he is impartial, as the Gospel of James tells us. But what's more, our calling to be God's children means we actually surrender to these storms. They will be unpleasant, but they will be formulative journeys. Because see, what the world ascribes to God not caring, to the cruel machinery of nature just grinding us up and spitting us out, we who believe and see God behind it ascribe those things instead to God's mercy. That is as unintelligible and crazy to the world's way of thinking as it sounds. The proper response for these disciples in that storm, the proper response for us in our storms, is thank you, Lord, for the mercy of this storm, even when it is scary, even when it is lethal. Because Jesus in John 15, 2, explains it to us. There Jesus says that it's the branch which produces fruit that is pruned. Again, our minds say that only the boat of the Pharisees should crash upon the rocks. Only the, the fruit branch that isn't working, the, the one who's not quite believing right, should be the one that God cuts on and, and forms and shapes. But nowhere in the parable, in the teaching on the vine and John, does Jesus say that God does anything about pruning the unfruitful branches. Now the unfruitful branches are ultimately gathered up here 
It doesn't go well for them when they get tossed into the oven. But here in this life, Jesus does tell the fruitful branches that they are going to be troubled by pruning shears and unpleasant cuts. Because let's just switch it around a little bit. God thinks so little of the wealth, the fame, the things of this world which so fascinate us that he often showers them like garbage down upon those with whom he is most angry. God is very pleased to give to the folks that he doesn't like at all. So many things that we want. Fame, money, riches. He just gives them away freely because they mean nothing to him. But one thing that he gives only to his children and only to those whom he loves is that ability to be conformed to Christ. That ability to even be pruned. It was okay just kind of focusing it back together. When the storms come, our attitude has to be different from these disciples, because faith fully develops, senses that Jesus is still in the boat, that God is with us. We have to get to the point where even if nature takes its course, God is directing it for our good. But this is such an incredibly challenging thing, to praise God even as our vessel is dashed on the rocks. I think the most important thing that the disciples say in this whole discourse is they tell, come to Jesus and they say, do you not care if we perish? And this, this gets to the whole heart of the whole thing. Now frankly, perishing is indeed appropriate for those who are not in Christ. Many unbelievers, in fact, are very wise and their body is telling them no lie when they are scared. They realize for themselves that to lose this life is to perish just as they imagined. That's why they can see nothing but animosity and indifference of God behind the storm. Because they've got no other, no other rock to cling to because they won't cling to the rock that was given because they've got no other place to put their foot. They know that if they fall off that motorcycle, if that bridge comes down, if that storm washes them away, that was it. It's not a Sega game where they get a second chance. We, we try to explain some of that away by going for God didn't intend for nature and da 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 da. But the real thing is, God knows full well what He's doing when He sends a storm. If your religion is but skin deep and superficial, you're not wrong to be scared when you sniffle and but these disciples are wrong in that fear that they will perish because this is not the case for those who are in Christ. Because see, come shipwreck, come disease, whatever calamity, be it a bite by a snake, or whatever it is, and ultimately it will come. These disciples all went through this storm. Jesus quieted it, but there would be a great many more. They were called to be fishers of men, and you can't be a fisherman unless you face storms. Many of them were going to die martyrs. 
But the fact that you will perish in this life, perish is used loosely. To say, to live is Christ and to die is Christ. And too many Christians, too many disciples live as if God's predestination, as if he's guiding up the universe, is some sort of cruel and blind faith. However, for us, the peace has been made and God's power, his election, his sovereignty, his rule of the world has a million eyes, knows all things, and works all things for our good. Because ultimately that indifference that we perceive in God and in his running of the universe is our own minds projecting it onto him. Because my final point for the day is God cannot be indifferent to us. God in his very person is mercy. Look to the Trinity. The Father gives all things. Look to the Son who gives himself for you. Look to the Holy Spirit that's called the Comforter. It'd be a weird Comforter if he didn't feel any empathy for us. We Christians, we, we say God is love is a platitude, but we just don't actually accept it, and that's what I'm getting at. It's part of the general malaise in church these days. I feel quite certain that there's many who believe that there is a God, but I am also quite certain that that belief is kind of like how we accept H2O as water, or if I told you, well, well the catalytic converter is this, that, and the other thing on your car, and you'd go, okay. They believe that there's God, but they don't believe in there's God. And that's why when we get to the hurdle of these storms, we get to the whole matter. We fail to believe that God is who he says he is. And that is why the disciples fear perishing. God has told them they will have eternal life. That this life, even though it ends, they shall live beyond it. That no matter how bad the wipeout seems to the world, even if they go down in the ocean, they haven't lost a single thing. It's kind of like how someone is panicking they are dying. You can still sit there and tell them, well, you're not dead yet. And Jesus is trying to get that into their heads. They are not dead yet, but even more than that, my brothers and sisters, no matter how bad it gets, even when you are on your deathbed and you have breathed your last, and I am sitting there inside and feeling really bad for you, you are not dead even in that moment. You are home with Christ. But see, I think the hurdle that that's just under all of this. When the storms come up, the winds go, and we see the way the world works is we just don't believe Ephesians 1.4, that God loved us before the very earth began. Before the mountains, before the river, the storms, the viruses, whatever it is that scares you and goes bump in the night, God has been loving you according to Scripture. If we could just accept that, then it would seem very strange to us how we often approach God when our storms come and when we're in trouble. Because we almost seem to suspect every single time that God has been loving you for all eternity, before time even was, has been creating the earth, creating dinosaurs, doing all sorts of other things. He has waited your whole life while we went to high school and everything else, and he has been waiting up to this very struggle, this very moment, this very time you feel bad, and that's when God's going to toss in the town. That's what, we, that's what the disciples are accusing him of. You see, I mean, it, it was another pastor that said it a long time ago, and it sounds like a jest, but 
If these disciples had really ticked Jesus off in the middle of this story, do you realize he's Jesus? He could have got up and walked off the boat. The problem is that that's not too much of a joke because many of us in our relationships to God are what we think he's going to do. We haven't accepted Romans 5.10 while we were yet enemies, while we were fighting God, he loved us. So how can we accept that he is with us in these things? But I think what is important to know in this whole issue of Lord, do you not care if we are perishing is what lays on the other side. If it wasn't for the storm, if it wasn't for the sense it was big and scary, and if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was asleep and was letting them work out these emotions and really showing to them what they were thinking, they never would have gotten a second part. When Jesus stands up and quiets it. It's one thing to fight a caged animal. Most people would be willing to go by a lion that's behind plexiglass. It's another thing to stand in front of it when there's no glass in the way. And as disciples and as folks who live under the promises of God that he's with us even to the ends of the age, to the end of the day, and through the storm, it's one thing to say that when the weather is clear, another when the skies are dark. Let us pray.